0: Good morning. My name is Steve, and I pray for the very last time. Come this Thursday, I will not be the only pastor. I look forward to that day. Hey, you know, it dawned on me as I was walking up here that... um, as I sort of get my sheets together, that uh, at Disney, whenever you show up there, they they have this saying, welcome home. And you know, I don't think it's right that they sort of own that saying. I mean, as believers, and as we're going to get into God's Word today, I think it's a saying we should adopt, that we should say to each other, welcome home. And so we're going to find out more about that, but it is something I think that Disney stole from us, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, uh, let's read God's Word together. If you have your Bibles with you or grab a pew Bible, um, we're going to read from God's Holy Word in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to read from verse 4 all the way uh, through verse 14. Or 12, sorry, through 12. Um, yeah. All right. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious Father, we do pray that you would indeed open our minds, soften our hearts, that we might hear your word. That we might know of your home. A home that you have made a place for us. A home that we are always, always welcome in. A home that someday you will greet us and say, welcome home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This... Um, Passage reminds me much of what happened this past Thursday, besides eating an abundance, actually probably an overabundance of turkey, um, and taking a nap because of the tryptophan that uh, raged through my body. Um, We had the privilege here at UPC over in the commons to serve the homeless, you all had been so gracious and kind to provide food, and many of you came and helped out, and we were able to serve uh, over 30 uh, homeless people here at the church for a Thanksgiving meal that they may not have otherwise had, 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 would have had um, together. And while they were without a home, they were not without names nor without stories, and I enjoyed talking with them and hearing their stories Like you and I, they had pasts, they had ups and downs, and many of their downs had led them to places where most of us have never gone. Like you and I, they had hopes and dreams, and they longed for something, a something that many of them that I spoke to had trouble putting into words, homeless, The word alone evokes all kinds of feelings, doesn't it? Images in our minds. It certainly does me. Webster defines it this way, having no home or permanent place of residence. That, however, in no way can describe what it must be like to be a person who is without a home. Becoming a homeless person can happen for many reasons, most of which we believe... I'm sure, will never happen to us. Let me bring this to light by telling you a story. It's a story of a young man who tells his own experience in this way. He says, If you've never been homeless, it's tough to describe the first night sleeping on the street. The fear and disillusionment are almost paralyzing. You just go through the motions, but at the same time, You're really beating yourself up for being in this situation. It's very surreal because no one ever thinks they will be homeless. No one. I'll never forget my first night. All of a sudden, without warning, I found myself homeless in Koreatown near downtown Los Angeles. I was sober, but I had no money, no place to go, and no one I could call for help. I was officially homeless. This was all new to me. I had no homeless training. I had no clue how I was going to survive. Just six months earlier, I had a well-paying job in the television industry, overseeing syndicated programs like Wheel of Fortune. But now, I was the one who had suddenly landed on bankrupt. The irony was painful. That is but one story by one gentleman. The feelings of homelessness, though, I don't think only exist when we live on the streets. I think you can live in a nice suburban home and feel lost and disconnected. You can feel scared and alone. In some of our quiet moments, we understand that the four walls of our home are not so safe and secure as we would like them to be. They don't protect us from the pain and the heartache that we feel. They don't help when we are lonely and feeling rejected. We can feel homeless even in our own homes. And it is in this sense of not knowing where you belong that Peter speaks in our text this morning. He starts off this letter of 1 Peter with this salutation to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. In other words, to those Christians who have been scattered around the known world from their homes, the place where they belong, to those who reside as aliens, in a sense to those who feel homeless. But he gives us this, we are not homeless, but part of God's home. Throughout the text, Peter speaks of the church as a chosen, of God's chosen people. All that we are as a church rests in all that Jesus is. In verse 4 and 5, Peter uses the metaphor of a living cornerstone. The imagery here is that of a builder who before laying the cornerstone of a building searches through the rocks to find the very best cornerstone building stones and capstones. In specific, the first stone, the very first stone that a builder would lay, is that cornerstone. And it is necessary and intended to be the best stone of all. In order for the building to be square and stable, the cornerstone must be perfectly flat and square to support the other stones and to establish the baseline of the entire building. The meaning of the verse 4 is that Jesus is that perfect stone, chosen by God to be the perfect building stone for all God's chosen people to stand on in strength. The building will stand under the torment of shame and suffering because it is built on the foundation Of God's precious stone. Ironically, when Jesus is examined by the Jewish leaders of his day, he is the cornerstone that the builders or the leaders of the church rejected. This was foretold some hundred years earlier in Psalm 118. We, Peter says that we are living stones that are built up in God's spiritual home. As Paul reminds the church in Corinth, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Because Jesus was the chosen one, we, we who believe in him are the chosen ones. And God's chosen living stones for the house of God are indeed so precious. The Greek word here for precious is entomos. It means to be honored, to be respected, to be valuable, to be precious. Many of you know that I am a new grandfather. And so now, of course, I'm going to show you a slideshow of my grandson, No, I'm just kidding. But this understanding, this visualization of what it means to be precious becomes so clear when you're staring at the face of a newborn creation of God. You see, my son Lucas, my grandson Lucas had nothing to do with winning my favor. He just laid there. He could offer me nothing. He could say nothing. It's likely he could even see my face. But he was indeed precious in my sight. To live in this home is to live in a new identity. Now, last week, Reverend Glodo had issues with the word radical. If you were here and you recall, he had problems with the idea that it was overused. And I wanted to cry out an amen, but I did not because we're good Presbyterians and we don't do that. <laughs> but it is, overu- <laughs> it is a highly overused term, but it is indeed what, he, what Peter is driving at here. Peter says you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. He is saying that we are radically new and that we are to live in a radically new way. How is that foreseen? Well, in the Old Testament, at the time of Israel, God, from God's chosen people, God set apart specific people chosen by the leaders to be priests. And priests were instructed and trained, ordained by God to offer sacrifices for forgiveness, to pray for the people, and to instruct them in his truth. You see, this radical new statement says that Peter is saying that we, those who know Christ, we are priests. We have access to God without human intermediaries as was necessary in the past. We all pray and ask for forgiveness. We can understand God's Word because we know God, and He leads us into truth through the indwelling of His Holy Spirit. And as priests, we offer, as we read in verse 5, spiritual sacrifices... Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, God does only, both in the Old and the New Testaments, both then and now, God only accepts accepts perfect sacrifices. Then how is it that we, a flawed people, can offer a perfect sacrifice? It is through God himself and through his Son, who cleanses our sacrifices and makes them perfect by his will and his indwelling of us. This idea, this concept of the priesthood of all believers was a reformation principle, one in which the medieval church really began to fail to understand, and it stems from this very passage. One article writes it this way. That all believers are priests means that not only ministers, but also the person in the pew has the right and authority to read, interpret, and apply the teachings of the Bible. No longer must must we place our implicit faith in the teaching of the church magisterium. We can learn immediately from the Word of God and the instruction of the Holy Spirit. Every person, therefore, who is united with Christ shares in his priestly office. But this great blessing does not mean that we should reject the authority, function, and office of minister. We are indeed a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. Christ dispenses this holy office to all Christians through the outpouring of the Spirit. But in addition to this blessing, Christ has also given to the church gifts. The shepherds and teachers are the church are priests just like the rest of the body, but the Spirit uniquely gifts them so that they can equip the church for their own growth in grace and the proclamation of the gospel. These shepherds and teachers do not belong to a higher order of being as in the medieval understanding. Rather, they are one part of the body. Not greater than any other part, but necessary nonetheless. The shepherd cannot say to the person in the pew, I have no need of you because the Spirit has gifted me to be a shepherd. Conversely, the person in the pew cannot say to the shepherd, I have no need of you because I am a priest in Christ. God has sovereignly arranged the body of Christ in such a manner that each part, through different functions and gifts, needs every part. That, as Presbyterians, is a radical idea. That we, all of us, are priests. As Peter reminds and comforts those in exile of where they truly belong, where their home is, at the same time, he is reminding them of who they are, what their identity is, is we can easily see this in the idea that where we live sometimes creates a sense of identity broadly because we live in america we're americans many people can get very caught up with this self-identity of nationalism do you live in east orlando or maybe downtown or maybe windermere Just the mention of these areas of town bring with it a sense of identity, whether we like it or not. Are you Presbyterian because you go to a Presbyterian church? Or is it because you agree with the polity or government beliefs of the Presbyterian church? What town, neighborhood, house, or church we live in or go to brings with it in a, way, in a way, a sense of identity. One commentator writes this idea this way, in Western nations, the educated lived in a meritocracy so that our identity and our achievements are confused with one another. We define ourselves and let, and let others define us by our strengths, our weaknesses, and our accomplishments. So we live with the pressure To perform. We are measured and measure ourselves by this, even though so much rests our forces far outside our control. Immigration patterns raise or lower wages. The careless acts of distant financiers and governments create environments where profits can easily come one year and disappear the next. What happens then if our earnings and our titles define us. In Peter's day, identity came from externals, their town, the occupation, the lineage, and the gender. That is more stable, but not necessarily better than our way. It was especially painful for the Gentile convert who was reviled for leaving old customs and associations. They lost much of their identity. Further, in following Jesus, the Gentiles chose a leader of dubious paternity from an impoverished city. He was a landless artisan, untrained itinerant preacher who died in a public execution. Our identity truly is in our home because our home is in Jesus. Peter makes it so clear by a comparative analysis of Jesus and us in these short verses. The traits of Jesus are in, chapter, in uh, verse 4 and 6, he is a living stone. We are living stones in verse 5. He was rejected by humans. We have been rejected and are exiles and aliens. Verse 11. Jesus, in God's eyes, was chosen and elect. In God's eyes, we too are chosen and elect in verse 9. Jesus, in God's eyes, was valued and honored and precious. In God's eyes, we too are royal, beloved, and precious, as we see in verse 9 and 11. You see, those who are believers in Jesus Christ are called living stones of the house of God. And are, are, as such, we are far more significant than we can imagine. We are far more important to the building up of God's kingdom on earth and far more important in supporting one another than we can possibly see. We scatter into the world, serving the one who sent us, And are held up by the chief cornerstone. Jesus will use us to build his kingdom on earth together. We are therefore called to be set apart from the world that we live in. Yes, of course, we live and work in this world around us. We should and must work hard in the tasks that we do. We must go to school or go to work follow the rules and laws, clean our rooms, etc. That is to say, we must live our lives within the context of this world. But at the same time, we are different. We are holy, set apart for God's purpose, and therefore we must live in a manner which reflects the nature of the God who dwells within us. Every stone in the building is important. Each stone is different and serves a different function, but are necessary for the building to stand. I wasn't going to say this, but growing up, I never fully understood, I never got it in any way, shape, or form the idea that God dwells in me. He was always there somewhere. Always distant, had a plan, I guess, for my life and others. But the idea that Peter is driving here is that God is not distant, he is present. And the idea is not only is he present, he is inside us, he is with us. He never leaves us, he never forsakes us, he walks with us and he changes us. So the consequence of that is, together as a church, as God's chosen people, we must live, as Peter puts it, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. That is to say, when temptation comes, even a little, that we will call upon the name of the Lord who is the perfect sacrifice and seek the goodness of Him who has called us to life. So when we are tempted to gossip about our neighbor, we remember that our neighbor is made in the image of God. and We do not gossip because we offer a life that is different than a world of shame. When we see hate and violence because someone is different than us, by race or creed or color, we must respond in grace and love. In both our thoughts and in our actions. The longing and the calling is to be set apart, to be different. It does not, however, come from ourselves. It does not come from our willingness to try harder or to be better. It does not come from self help books or motivational speakers or the nightly news. None of these things last. None of these things are as strong as the chief cornerstone. Our desire and our ability to be living in a marvelous light in this world of darkness comes from the God who called us and makes our sacrifices acceptable. Jesus is promising the homeless a new home, his home. What Peter is telling us in the history of God is how he is saving the world. Let's draw this out. The people of the day would have known their Old Testament. And they would have remembered that when you experience God, you experience God in the church. That is where God dwelt amongst his people, in the tabernacle of the tent. Outside the church, you would follow the rules given by the church as best as you can. When Jesus came to the earth as a child, this radically big idea that we long to celebrate at Christmas is that God becomes a man, both fully God and fully man. And instead of dwelling in a tent of meeting, He dwells with us. You see, we move from being with God in the tent of meeting to now being with God, walking and talking with us. Jesus, among other things, makes this clear and brings clarity to the light of rules and insight into the character of God and to his fullness. However, Peter is taking this one step further. Peter is clarifying to those Christians and to us that when Jesus dies in his resurrection resurrected what we love to celebrate at easter god now dwells within us by the power of the holy spirit the dwelling place of god is in his people c.s lewis in his book mere christianity explains it this way imagine yourself as a living house god comes in to rebuild that house At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised at all. But then he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurts and does not seem to make any sense at all. What on the earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and to live in it himself. Therefore, you, we, are a new creation. Or as it says in verse 10, we once were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We no longer have to fight the same battles time and time again alone. We are not the same as we once were. While it's true that we have many of the same problems as our neighbors and our friends, some troubling aspects in our life still remain as we, after we believe. It is also true that those problems no longer have power over us. <clears throat> For we have the Lord over all things to dwell in our souls, giving us the power we need to defeat temptation." Just as a building is made stronger when the foundation is strong and the construction is done well and the materials are the best you can find, we too have the strength not to crumble or to break when our job is terminated or when the kids are rebelling or when the bank account is empty or when the news on the TV just keeps getting worse and worse. This is not because we are strong, but because God in us have made us strong. In keeping with the analogy from C.S. Lewis, this is not a Lowe's do-it-yourself project. If I'm any example, I am awful at your do-it-yourself projects around the house. Just ask Lee, and she will have no problem attesting to that fact. No, we cannot fix ourselves. We cannot solve our problem of sin or the effects of sin by working harder or eating right or motivational books. Only God can fix us. And the good news that Peter is telling us here is he will move in and he will work on us each second of every day for the rest of our lives and make us his precious creation. Throughout my 32-year-ish corporate career, I would keep a business card each time my title would change. Over the years, I collected many of the cards as I moved through my career and changed my responsibilities. I was proud of my titles because I saw them as accomplishments for all my hard work and sacrifice. At times, I would pull them out of my briefcase, and I would flip through them one by one and pat myself on the back for my career. One day, several years ago, it struck me that I had not accomplished actually any of these things. Certainly, hard work and dedication to whatever we're doing is indeed a good thing. It shows honor to the calling that God has given us. However, what became clear to me as I thought through the years of these cards was that it was not I who accomplished any of these things, but it is by God's grace that I had the privilege of giving the gifts and talents that He gave me to the work that He had called me to. Those titles and those cards became far less important as I understood that these were mere pieces of paper that told a story about the work that God was doing in my life. I came to realize that the title on all of our business cards should read Chosen Race Royal Priesthood Member of a Holy Nation. The privilege The privileged state of God's people leads us to privileged action. That is to say, because God has redeemed us and we are His, we are to declare the praises of Him who has called us out of that darkness and into that marvelous light. We are to live and work knowing that we are not our own, but we have been bought with a price, the precious price of God's own Son. We are a holy nation and we are belonging to the one who saved us. The promises given to us here in 1 Peter is what gives us hope. So when life feels overwhelming, or your busy schedule is out of control, or you are feeling left out and alone, remember the promise that you are not alone, and that you stand in the most beautiful, wonderful, marvelous light that will one day fill the earth and bring healing and restoration to all the brokenness and all the loneliness. Let me conclude with one final story. When I was in seminary, uh, Lee and I attended First Presbyterian Church in downtown. And as you can imagine, there is a great number of homeless that are near there. And as we would come out of church often, we would see certain people... Uh, as regulars holding up signs and asking for money. And there was this one woman who stood there outside the church this one Sunday and held up a sign asking for money. And so I watched and stood and watched a lot of people walking by her and saying nothing. So I walked up to her <laughs> and I introduced myself. And she said, hi, my name is Trish. I shook her hand, but then couldn't help notice that she had not bathed in quite some time. And her clothes were completely worn out. She was very sweet and very kind. And she told me a little bit about herself and her story. And as we talked, she shared with me that she sneaks in the back of the church most Sunday mornings to hear the message. She was afraid that people would reject her because of how she smelled and how she looked. But she stood in the back, and she loved hearing the stories about Jesus. She loved hearing the pastor tell her many things about him. She has no house, no apartment, no running water, no washer, no dryer. She doesn't own a car Or have a TV with 200 channels. She, however, is not homeless. She knows where she belongs. And to whom she belongs. And who she is. And one day, one day, along with all of God's holy nation, she will be restored to glory. Through the chosen, precious cornerstone of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Merciful and gracious Father, you invite us home from the scattered places that we go, from the places that we run to and think we can hide, For the places we think we find happiness, we think we find contentment and peace, but instead we find brokenness and loneliness, and yet you invite us home. You invite us into your arms, Father, to dwell within us, to make us far more than a little cottage, but into a grand palace, one that you dwell, one that is yours, and therefore we are yours. We praise you and thank you for all that you are and all that you have done. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and sing?